Welcome to the Advanced Persistent Security Podcast, where we discuss the world of IT and cybersecurity. Don't be left in the dark about what's going on in the world around you. Here is your host, Joe Gray. Hello and welcome to the second episode of This Week in Security. This encompasses the week of September 7th through the 14th, 2015. To provide an overview, we will be discussing a follow-up to the Ashley Madison data breach, backlash from the OPM cyber attacks, baby monitors vulnerable to cyber attack, and code vulnerabilities within Kaspersky antivirus and FireEye. Starting with the follow-up to Ashley Madison, I must give you the disclaimer, this is not meant to discuss the morality of the website, the morality of hacking, the morality of cheating, the morality of anything involved with this. This is purely from a technical standpoint and furthermore discusses some of the outside ramifications. As we all know, Ashley Madison was breached. 37 million users in the database were exploited. And as a byproduct of that, the CEO steps down. There's now a bounty for any information leading up to the arrest of the perpetrators known as Impact Team. We are not sure if it's an inside job or an external attack or a combination of the two. It does seem to be hacktivism related. So, first and foremost, three John Doe anonymous Ashley Madison users are suing GoDaddy and Amazon in the state of Arizona, according to Business Insider, for $3 million in damages and loss associated with the breach. The reason Amazon and GoDaddy are listed in the lawsuit is they are acting as internet service providers. They did not prevent the general public from searching for websites that have the list of users. They are also suing those websites, operators, and anything that basically allowed the public to search for users' personal information. Yes, it seems far-fetched, but not entirely because... They are pretty much leveraging the Digital Millennium Copyright Act of 1998, also known as the DMCA. It's the same legislation that Ashley Madison and Avid Life Media is using to keep their database list off the public internet. So, moving forward to the technical perspective, it doesn't seem like Impact Team was lying or over-embellishing about the lack of security. Apparently, within the source code of Ashley Madison, Amazon Web Service Tokens, their cloud tokens, database credentials consisting of database users having passwords of five to eight characters, uh, certificate private keys and other secret credentials were found. It's a major blunder in coding. It's almost like a rookie mistake. They have to know that they have to have have known that they were targets for moral hacktivists or whatnot. It's almost surreal. Nonetheless, they only had two of the four print types in the passwords, uppercase, lowercase, numbers, or symbols. They only had two of the four types. That's also a rookie mistake. For example, the U.S. federal government mandates that passwords must be 15 characters long. They have to have three of the four print types, if not all four. They can't be used twice within a cycle of 24 passwords. They expire every 60 days. Cannot be changed more than once in a 24-hour period cannot have more than three sequential characters, cannot have anything to do with the user's name or the username, and has a lockout threshold of three. There were also Twitter OAuth tokens, Amazon Cloud API keys, 
and SSL certificate private keys hard-coded into the source code. It almost seems like the programmers there either did the exact opposite of everything that security said they should do, or they were really just that pressed for time and took a lot of shortcuts. Honestly, it seems kind of counterproductive. And if they were PCI certified, I would say that the QSA that authorized them should probably also be on the chopping block for this. They should have found it. They should have pointed it out during the outbrief. It should have been a mandatory thing to fix before they could actually get their PCI accreditation, PCI being payment card information. It's just pure negligence. I can't even wrap my head around it. So according to TechCrunch, they've posted the top passwords known thus far. I'm only going to do the top five because I don't want to have to click the button that says that this is an explicit podcast and number six and beyond kind of teeter on that. So organizations have spent about two weeks running password cracking utilities on the passwords that they got. There's approximately 36 million hashed passwords and thus far about 25,000 have been cracked. There were only about a thousand unique passwords. The top five are as follows. One, two, three, four, five, six. Password, one, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And QWERTY, which is the first six characters on the top row of the keyboard. Check out TechCrunch for the more comprehensive list. SC Magazine's posting that There's been a series of emails demanding 1.05 Bitcoin, which is about $250, as of Friday in exchange for not releasing data to family and friends. They include unique Bitcoin addresses for payment, which could ultimately be uh, tracked. Honestly, we had to have seen this coming. Criminals are criminals because they don't follow the law. There's nothing stopping them from using the DARPNet to find the users and attempt to blackmail, extortion, whatever. And that's just why you don't use your work email or any email that you care about for stuff like this. There's another scam going around. involves a website where people go to it and it offers a data removal service. It's a scam. They pay between $200 and $5,000 for a variety of specific services. And ultimately, the, the scam is just that, a scam. Obviously, Gmail, Yahoo, Hotmail, other mail vendors are stepping up to the plate to hopefully ensure that Ashley Madison-related phishing attack signatures are input into the filter so that people don't get them. Even for those people that never signed up for an account, it could create turmoil in their lives if their spouses receive phishing emails purporting that the spouse was on the website. Could be the next wave of cyber havoc. Who knows? Are you looking for a place to advertise to the unique audience of IT security professionals and enthusiasts? Look no further. Advanced Persistent Security is seeking sponsors. This slot could be yours. Contact sales at advancedpersistentsecurity.net for more information. Thanks for hanging around through our short break. Next, we're going to discuss the Office of Personnel Management Cyber Attack and its impact on federal IT. If you've watched the news in the last six months, chances are you've heard at a minimum about the Office of Personnel Management's mismanagement of the security of personnel data. This was a cyber attack. If I recall correctly, a vendor was doing a presentation and found the actual malware that was causing it. Nonetheless, 
If you are or have been a federal employee, contractor, or military, you've probably received, quote-unquote, the notice in the mail. It's made several headlines, and it appears as if the government's kind of just putting people out to dry. So we're going to dive a little bit deeper. Sometime around May, OPM discovered they had some security issues. They kind of kept it quiet except for the vendor. They never really released how long they had been vulnerable, if they even knew. It was shared with relevant agencies in quotation marks in June. The interagency response team shared with relevant agencies the exposure of personal records that had occurred. Essentially, it seems like it was premeditated. It's still under investigation in the interagency partners. Nothing has really been put out, and it's kind of been just pushed off to the side. The CIO has been in the hot chair, but she has since resigned, uh, stepping down in July. Uh, It appears as if there are 21.5 million victims. So the question is, who's next? Who in the government domain is next? So federal CIO Tony Scott ordered a 30-day sprint to get federal agencies to take the problem seriously and assess their security policies. But, I mean, 30 days, that's just the beginning of discovery. A 30-day sprint is not going to solve a lot of the problems. When you have integrated security and you follow the government framework, as you're supposed to, the, the NIST documents, then you might actually have some true security. Lax security policies have been the status quo for years in the federal sector, and they purport that 95% of the private sector are vulnerable. The federal IT is just as vulnerable. This could be true. It might not be. I mean, it's really difficult to see this. Since 2009, network intrusions on .gov and .mil domains have tripled. So it's went from about 29,000 to 70,000 attempts, according to website The Hill. 2015 is on track to be another record year. This isn't the first cyber attack against federal IT infrastructure. You may recall that one of Anonymous's first attacks was actually against CIA.gov. Many security researchers project a massive attack against DOD classified systems in the near future unless there are significant changes to the processes themselves made. So with regards to OPM, to summarize, we know what happened. We don't know the full scope of what exactly happened and who exactly did it. There was a lot of speculation that it may have been Russia, China, North Korea, anybody. And honestly, it's just kind of hushed and it's kind of rode off to the sunset, which is kind of perturbing. Next, we'll talk about baby monitors. Baby monitors vulnerable to cyber attacks. So everybody's heard of the Internet of Things, be it your washing machine, your refrigerator, your TV, your baby monitor, your thermostat. Everything is becoming wired. Computer World reported in early 2015 that parents were getting hacked Uh, Using the baby monitor, the hackers would control the camera, talk to the baby, talk to the parents. Went away for a while, but at the beginning of September, it came back according to Ars Technica. So multiple internet-connected baby monitors were exploited. These monitors were considered to be part of the Internet of Things. Thus far, here's what we know. Rapid7, it's a cybersecurity research firm. They also produce the... Metasploit Software spent a lot of 2015 reviewing nine models and scored them with a 250-point scale for overall security. Eight of the nine models failed. The ninth received a D. Check the blog for the models that were included. 
A quote from ZDNet report indicates that the monitors were hacked fairly easily. A specific baby monitor has a web service issue that allows easy access to other people's camera details by changing the serial number in a URL string. By abusing this access, file names of a camera's recorded video clips automatically created from a motion or noise alert can be harvested. Through a simple script, an attacker could potentially gain access to every recorded clip for every registered camera across the entire service. Most of these cameras had serious problems. They had passwords that were hidden, passwords you couldn't change, or very simple passwords. They didn't encrypt the data stream, so anyone mooching your Wi-Fi could get the stream. CBS reported that some of the officials for these models wouldn't even respond to the findings, and honestly, the higher price models didn't mean that it was more secure. How could this be prevented? Very simply, you don't always have to have an internet-connected device. You can have it to where it's connected only internally to your network or the old-fashioned wired system. But then also, you need to look at things like a lot of people want to allow their friends and family to look at the baby from afar. For example, my family lives in Tennessee. If I had a baby, they may want to look at it, and that's one way they could do so. Uh, You don't need to stray away from that. You don't need to stray away from those devices, but you need to do adequate research. If you're going to give that kind of password out to someone, you give them a simple password, you tell them when to look at it when they are done, you change it back to the complex password. A lot of the devices have default passwords such as password or admin, and you need to change them immediately just like you do with your home Wi-Fi router or anything else because they're posted in manuals and they're on the internet and hackers are aware of it, period. Once you've changed the password, you're a little bit further up in the pecking order of security. Where there's a will, there's a way. If you want to let your family and friends have access, you can do it the way I mentioned before. Or, I mean, it might seem foreign, but you could use FaceTime, Skype, Google Voice, any sort of video chat alternative as well. And if you're not securing your internet-connected devices, you're leaving yourself, your family, your network open to cyber attack. They could get into there. Uh, into your baby monitor, gain full access to your network. You, they could gain all kinds of information that has nothing to do with your baby monitor, such as passwords, credit card numbers, personal information, and almost anything that any nefarious person may want. Are you subscribed to this podcast? If not, please do so on iTunes and at advancedpersistentsecurity.net slash podcast. The final topic that we'll talk about this week is the flaws within Kaspersky and FireEye products. These are two separate events. They occurred around the same time. They were both publicly released via Twitter on Labor Day weekend. Tavis Ormandy, a security researcher and Google employee, in a controversial fashion, tweeted that he had found a major interaction flaw in Kaspersky antivirus, according to International Business Times. He posted it publicly. He didn't go to Kaspersky first, which is very highly frowned upon by others in the security community. Graham Cluley is one of them. He was very critical of that on his website. But within 24 hours, Kaspersky had already responded to this, according to PC World. This was only limited to their antivirus software In a statement to Computer Weekly, Kaspersky stated, We're improving our mitigation strategies to prevent exploiting of inherent imperfections of our software in the future. For instance, we already use such technologies as advanced 
space layout randomization and data execution prevention, the company said. The emergency push was put out on September 7th. That's about it with Kaspersky, aside from the fact of it was essentially a privilege escalation buffer overflow type attack, which is relatively uncommon, especially on a home computer. So shifting gears to FireEye, it was a very similar scenario. The difference is the person who found it by the name of Christian Eric Hermanson tweeted it, but he had been trying to let FireEye and their parent company Mandiant know for the last year and a half, but they essentially wouldn't listen. The problem is PHP coding that would inadvertently disclose sensitive information. And according to CSO Online, he posted a brief example of how to trigger the vulnerability and copy the Etsy password file, which could be of value. It may not be. It will definitely give you the entire list of users. And if they are not using what is called shadow, then you can decrypt the passwords. And then he has three other vulnerabilities and says they're already for sale on ExploitDB and Pastebin. Essentially, the machine is running Apache using PHP and running as root. The other listed services include Secure Shell, SSH, and File Transfer Protocol, FTP. And it looks like it's centered on a PHP script on the FireEye appliance itself. It's not a good sign. This is a security product. This is something that organizations purchase and then assign a specific high level of trust because of what it's supposed to do. FireEye, aside from this, is considered to be one of the top next generation firewalls, which is the cream of the crop in terms of security appliances. It's complementary to your existing firewall. It works with your intrusion detection system, your vulnerability management system, so forth and so on. It's something you have to trust as an organization. And this is I want to stress this is not a good sign if they are not listening to researchers. It's a safe assumption that almost all FireEye appliances are impacted until another formal statement is released. FireEye did release a statement to Salted Hash, and it said, This morning, FireEye learned of four potential security issues in our products from Christian Hermanson's public disclosure of them being available for purchase. We appreciate the efforts of security researchers like Hermanson and Ron Paris to find potential security issues and help us improve our products, but always encourage responsible disclosure. FireEye has a documented policy for researchers to responsibly disclose and inform us of potential security issues. We have reached out to the researchers regarding these potential security issues in order to quickly determine and potentially remediate any impacts to the security of our platform and our customers. That's completely contradictory to what Hermanson's saying. He's saying he's tried to give, he's been trying to give them the information for 18 months. It seems almost as if sales were more important to the company than the actual security. I would think that companies like Fortinet and Palo Alto are probably going to get some more business, more business than they were looking to get. Uh, It will probably cause a serious disturbance in the sales of the products, considering that the people who make those decisions typically read the same blogs and listen to the same podcasts as the other security researchers, so it will be known fairly internally. What could have been done differently? More stringent code reviews, QA testing, that's the easiest way. The fact that it was exploited in the wild or after production sales and deployment, it's not really great. 
The question is, how long have more nefarious hackers known about this? I mean, somebody found it. It could be worse. This will definitely cause significant damages to the reputations of Kaspersky and FireEye. I would project probably more so to FireEye than Kaspersky. Thank you for listening to the Advanced Persistent Security Podcast. Until next time, stay secure and don't forget to subscribe to this podcast.